Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel 19. Today we'll be looking at this whole chapter. And as you probably already know and appreciate, this book is especially important in lots of ways, but one way that it's, it should really grab us is that we find out something very special about how God protects and provides for what he wants to accomplish in his redemptive plan. Don't forget that David is a type of the coming Christ. Not only that, David's descendants will lead to the birth of this Savior that we worship. Which adds just a little more drama to the scenarios here in chapter 19. We need to make those connections because as we face change in our lives as we face heartache, as we face physical things, as we face all sorts of ups and downs, what we know about God has a whole lot to do with where we place our confidence as we face what we do in our lives. And it allows us to trust that God's not asleep, that there's a purpose and so our whole, our whole demeanor and attitude can be completely different from people who do not know him. In 1 Samuel 18, as that chapter unfolded before us last week, we became acutely aware of the growing contrast between the king the people had demanded to have, Saul, And the young man whom God had chosen to replace him, David. Saul has already been rejected from being king by the Lord. We saw that back in chapter 15, verses 23 through 29. And David has been anointed by Samuel as the next king, which we saw as early as chapter 16, verse 13. But we're realizing that there is a tremendously important story being told before David actually begins his reign as the king of Israel. And it just doesn't seem right, does it? He's the anointed king. God, get with the program. And we forget this is his program. In fact, As we proceed, many of us may be wondering if and how David actually becoming the king is ever going to really happen. Why? Because even though rejected as king by the Lord for his continued obstinate rejection of the Lord's word, Saul is still trying to hold on to his position. And lo and behold, David is serving him. That should rock our world. It should shatter our crummy attitudes to see how God works and how powerful he is in the midst of stuff that we don't like and that just doesn't seem right. 
The contrast between these two men is best summed up back way back in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. There we read this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then in the first part of verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul never had a saving relationship with God. But after this, he didn't even have the Spirit's presence and guidance to equip him and guide him in carrying out his duty to protect Israel as the king. David did know the Lord and is described in chapter 16, verse 7, as a man after God's own heart. It becomes more and more obvious to all, especially Saul, that the Lord is with David, and we see that over and over. David is summoned by Saul to provide comfort and relief from a harmful spirit because David is known as being, verse 18 of chapter 16, skillful in playing the lyre, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And here we go. And the Lord is with him. He's a youth. In our terminology, that would be probably a teenager, late teenager, which is astounding. But he volunteers in one of the most desperate situations we see in any battle scenario in history. And he defeats the nine-foot-nine-inch Philistine giant Goliath. And he tells the giant that the Lord will deliver him into his hands, that the battle is the Lord's, and he will give him into his hand. Uh, Jonathan, Saul's own son, a valiant warrior, recognizes the Lord's hand upon David, and he makes a covenant with David, deferring to him as the heir apparent to the throne that most everybody thought would be his. Also a little strange to think about in any situation, but especially our culture. Three times we read in chapter 18 that the Lord was with David. During all of this, we see Saul becoming what? More and more bitter and more and more jealous, literally, almost, maybe, really, out of his mind. He tries to pin David to the wall two times by hurling a spear, his spear at him. I mean, it is kind of strange that somebody would be wandering around in his own court carrying his own spear, much less trying to pin somebody against the wall and get rid of them. He's afraid of and he's in fearful awe of, those are the text words of David, because, again, the Lord is with David. So Saul removed David from his presence 
we read. And David becomes Saul's most successful military commander. Then Saul puts his trust in the law of averages. He figures that enticing David to fight more and more Philistines has to end up at some point with David's death. Saul even uses his own daughter's love for David to get him to agree to win her hand by killing a hundred Philistines. But David comes back with proof of killing 200 Philistines. Nothing works for Saul, and we come to the end of chapter 18, reading that in verse 29. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. What? A scenario. If you're able, would you please stand? I'm going to read chapter 19 from the ESV. Chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David... Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David. Because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, And he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then David sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. 
And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sikuth. And he said, Where are Saul, Samuel, and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, and he went. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And so, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as you're sitting down, you have questions. Who doesn't? We're going to answer those questions and see the big point here. This is one of those passages that you might say, what, this is strange. There's some strange things going on here. Well, what we see here is four episodes of God delivering David. That's how you can outline this chapter. There's four episodes of God's deliverance. And we start off with things have changed. Saul's rage and his jealousy cannot be contained. He's issued orders to his staff. It's now official. Kill David. The strangeness of this should not escape us. For Saul knew that his son Jonathan had sworn a covenant of loyalty and friendship to David, and that his heart was knit to the younger hero. Love those words in the text. Saul also was very aware of the great love all the people of Israel had for David. So how in the world did Saul expect his own staff, including his son, to go along with this plot? Kill David. Well, let's see a military guy's answer. Same as the rest of us. Those who are gripped by evil often imagine that others are as easily corrupted as themselves. You ever notice that? Another way to say that is that those gripped by sin work really hard to entice others to go along with them. And they expect you to. That's what sin does. It corrupts us. So, we see the first deliverance here at the first of the chapter, in verses 1 through 7. 
After hearing for himself his father's orders to kill David, immediately Jonathan puts his friend David on high alert. In other words, Jonathan proved his faithfulness. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, we read in verses 4 and 5. He was pleading with his father to realize what a blessing David was. Let not the king sin against his servant David. And he uses three types of arguments here. There's a rational plea, there's a, a moral plea, and there's a theological plea. And they're all kind of right here together. The moral, I mean, the rational, let's start with the rational. The rational plea is, why are you trying to kill him? He hadn't sinned against you at all, ever. What's the moral plea? Well, Father, because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his own hand and he struck down the Philistine. What's he not saying? When you and I were too chicken to do it. How do you, why do you want to kill somebody like this? And the theological plea. What's that? Can you see it there? And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Who worked a great salvation? The Lord was behind this. It was obvious. So there's a rational plea, a moral plea, and a theological plea that Jonathan makes to his father. And he ends it with, Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And in an amazing turnaround, Saul listened to Jonathan. He heard him, and he swore an oath. As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And we know how long that's going to last, but right here he listened. Everybody in this room can identify with this scenario. Something's really wrong. You go before God and you say, what shall I do about this? And you know that you cannot run, you must go talk. You talk, you're humbled beyond belief, you plead your case. It makes sense, it's morally right, and you know God is in this. And you don't expect it because you know you're, this person's crazy. And he listens. And he even swears an oath. And you're glad. And you rejoice. And what else? And you know this may not be a permanent decision. That it's still in God's hands. And there still might be much to play out. The amazing temporary result we see in verse 7. Jonathan called David. And Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence as before. Are you thinking, 
Is David crazy? No. Saul is a little crazy because of his sinful heart and his evil mind and his jealousy and his rage and his bitterness. What is David? David knows God so well that he is willing again to put himself in the presence of a man who tried to kill him and had a more or less a contract out on his life. Even though he had made this oath, he goes and he serves him. Is my confidence in my God that great to do what I know is right that he's called me to do? Even when you're going, no, 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 no. The way Jonathan reasoned with his father on the basis of common morality and the obvious blessing, blessing of right thinking, plus confronting him with direct appeal from God's word by calling his plan sin, I don't know if you noticed that, should be the way that we respond to evil in our world. You want direction for how to address a sinful culture? Sinful friends, neighbors, workers, family members, this is a right way to do it, what Jonathan did. But your hope is not in your cool plan. Your hope is in the Lord. And you must trust Him in how it plays out and works. You must do it the right way. The Lord will work the way He wants. We should know that, but we don't. Okay? This this passage is just overflowing with practical applications. But this is the first one. The way we respond to evil in the world, make an appeal, make it rational, make it moral, and show God's sovereign purposes in it somehow, some way. God will give us ways to do that as things come up. And we tend to think, oh, if I say that, well, we say that because we know that we may say that with the wrong tone, with judgmentalness in our own hearts, with evil. We want retribution. We want vengeance. We want whatever. Jonathan did it right. That's deliverance number one in this passage, verses one through seven. The second deliverance we see in verses eight through ten. Have you noticed that the Philistines just never really get beat completely yet? Have you noticed that? It's kind of like the Amalekites were. They just keep showing up. You beat their champion, they disappear a little bit, and then, boy, they're back with a vengeance. You can't get rid of them, which may help us understand why God said when they went into the land to get rid of everybody. And they never did. But here they are again. The war with the Philistines just never seems to end. And so David keeps going out and fighting. Verse 8 says, And he struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And then we see this harmful spirit from the Lord is back, so we must not forget that Saul is a man that's under God's judgment. 
Don't forget that. David is providing his comforting music again for Saul, but Saul had that spear in his hand. That, that's a, a picture you just can't quite get out of your mind. David's playing this musical instrument to calm the man down who's holding a spear in his hand. Okay? So we know what's coming. Verse 10, And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, which means it stuck in it. And David fled and escaped that night. So his second deliverance is a little different from the first. All these deliverances are different, which shows you how creative God is. We know that until it's us that's in the middle of it. What do we see David? He ran. He got out of there. And do you see the irony here? The word struck appears twice in our text. So does the word fled. David struck the Philistines so that they fled. But Saul tries to strike David with a spear, so he has to flee. No more irony than that. David, the victor over the Philistines, is treated by Saul like he was a Philistine. Who in the New Testament was a victor over sin and death, but treated and struck down like a sinner deserving death? Who? Our Lord. If you make these connections with these stories, the greatness, the majesty, the glory of your God will go exponentially out of your universe. And it will build confidence and faith because you know more about God now than you did before. And he gives us these examples and these Old Testament pictures in order to help us have faith in him who is so much greater. But this is pointing to Christ. Deliverance number three is in verses 11 through 17. David didn't even have his own home as a refuge. And this sounds like it's really fast after this previous sore, I mean, spear episode. Saul's hitmen, that's who his messengers are, okay, don't. Don't get the idea that these are accountants he's sending out to take a survey. This is his hitmen he sends. They stake out David's home to kill him in the morning. David's wife, Michael, understood the desperate situation and urged him to get out that night. Sound familiar, guys? How many times have our wives said something and we go, oh, I didn't really see it like that. And they're going, duh. Who do you think those guys are? And the escape involved David being let down through a window. Maybe the house was a part of the city wall. We don't know. You know, sort of like Jericho was. It also involved uh, Michael's subterfuge using teraphim, that's the literal word, which is a household idol. Yeah, you should wonder about that. We'll 
have to deal with that sometime later too, which she put in a bed and covered up so it looked like a body. What kid has not done that? Yes, we all have the following questions that aren't really answered in this text. What was Michael doing with a household idol? Well, we can probably guess. And was this part of the problem that this couple had from this time forward? Because remember how jealous she's going to get and just she just goes bananas when he comes in with the ark and is dancing and she thinks he's being lewd and the whole thing. And, they, you know, this is a picture here of this couple. And was, was this something that Saul was counting on? Is this what he meant by she's going to be a snare for him? When we thought the following, when uh, Saul thought the following, this is in 1821, remember, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may against him. And therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. But the point is that the escape worked and the delay tactics worked. But her father was, can we say, royally ticked with her over being deceived? Yeah, he was. This is a, a great picture of a father's love for his daughter. Sad. Michael also added another deception that only fueled Saul's anger at David even more. Did you see it there at the end? She answered Saul's accusation about her letting David escape. How? Well, something along this line. Hey, Dad, do you realize what a brute that man can be? What choice did I have? He said he'd kill me. That's how she got out of it. We can all relate to these thoughts and expressions. The fourth deliverance in this chapter, and the last one is in verses 18 through 24. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. How would you like to have been in on that conversation? Biblical Counseling 101 is going on here. My, my conjecture is that Samuel was probably amazed at David's trust in the Lord and maybe amazed that was he being naive and just not seeing that, yes, Saul's off balance, but do you realize it's a little more than being off balance? He really does want you dead. Who knows what else? But you see, nothing can thwart God's intended provision of protection for David. And this gets interesting. Saul's men came, and they saw Samuel's group prophesying. But then the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Saul sent a second group of his men. Again, his men meaning what? the guys that were trying to find David, kill him. And then a third group. And we're going, but wait a minute, they're all prophesying. They're being spiritual. No, 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 you're, you're missing the point. Hang on here. 
They also prophesied. God is making an important point here, and I'm going to let Dale Ralph Davis explain it because he, well, he makes me smile so much in these texts. David's back is against the wall. Saul will not grant him sanctuary, even in Samuel's company. Don't miss that. So God sends forth his spirit in raw, irresistible power on Saul's police forces and compels them into helplessness. That's what's going on. He compels them into helplessness where they can't come close to David here by using the Spirit, his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Saul, however, was blinded by his own sin. He didn't get the point. Sent one group, sent a second group, sent a third group, so now he's going to go. Well, you can see what happens. Off Saul went to Ramah. Now, he also was overcome by the Spirit of God. God saw no reason to exempt Saul from his brute force simply because Saul was king. So David's defender assaulted Saul while he was on the way before he ever arrived, and his helpless condition persisted for some time. It involved rolling around naked. Do you see how God protects? Some strange ways. But that's what this is. Now let's make some observations about God's protection of his servant David. This chapter is so instructive about the diverse ways that God protects his servant David. There are multiple different ways that God delivers here in verses in chapter 19. God sometimes uses human instruments, which shouldn't surprise us. He used Jonathan. He used Michael. And we probably expected Samuel to come up with something. But instead, God used his own Holy Spirit to overcome Saul and his men. We can also, I'm so glad that that this finally came out. I've been wondering about this part of this text for as long as I can remember reading it the first time. I don't know about you, but I was always wondering, what, what in the world is going on there? We can also observe how God used human ineptitude in these processes. Saul has missed hitting David three times with his spear, at least that we know about. There may have been more. That's a bad shot. Saul's men didn't see David escaping through the window. Don't you get wonder about the, the crime shows that we, that we see on TV where, you know, 25 guys go and, and they're supposed to attack some house and somebody climbs out a window in the back because they're too dumb to know to go around the whole thing and what okay here we go again maybe that's where they got the idea and all this craziness looks scary to us but the message to David was that God was involved and will be involved the message to David 
was that God was involved and will be involved. David had not been forsaken. David had not been abandoned. That's the message. Sometimes, and this, this should be a sign somewhere in your house, somewhere, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you're successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. I need to hear that. Do you? Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, which is what we want. We just want to be done with the trouble, the hurt, the pain, the time. But you're still on your feet in the middle of it. Isn't that wonderful? Saul should have been instructed by God's protection too, but Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12 describes his predicament pretty well. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Saul's predicament. So God delivers four times here. First, he protects David by Jonathan talking to his father. Second, then Saul's spear misses David. Third, then we see a harrowing nighttime escape out of a window. And fourth, finally we see God display his own strength in compelling human weakness. One out of four. Did you get that? One out of four where God's own strength is demonstrated in ways that we can't even have a part of. Now, we're, nobody's saying that those are the ways that God always works, and it's always in that proportion. But you've got to realize our God's big. He can do whatever he desires to accomplish his purposes. Now, what about God's protection is ironic here. We know this. Every one of you already knows this, but let me just say it this way. Saul's enemy is preserved by Saul's family. And not just Jonathan. Michael's a part of this. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about God's instructive and diverse and ironic ways. Uh, and this is a, a favorite verse of many of you, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And anybody that walks with God on this earth knows that more and more the more they walk with him. His ways are not our ways. Now, 
The other question that we've got to deal with here is how much of David's experience can we expect in our own lives? This needs to be asked because a lot of people who are not careful in handling the word may seek to claim every detail of God's provision for David as their own, and you simply cannot do that. Why? Because David holds a special office over God's people. He will be the recipient of the covenant kingship. He has been set apart already for that kingship. It is through his line that God will send his own son. My life holds a far more modest place in God's kingdom plan, and the scheme for my life is almost totally hidden from me and you. I have no clear and specific promise or appointment as David did for kingship. Do we get that? Nevertheless, you've got to get that part before you can hear this part. Nevertheless, Dale Ralph Davis explains this again. When all qualifications are stated, it seems I can still claim Davidic protection in principle. What this means is, I can be confident that God will keep me until whatever he has ordained for me to be or to do is accomplished. And it's different for every person. There is no time promise here. There is no experience promise here. There is no lack of pain promise here. The issue is, I can be confident that God will keep me until whatever he has ordained for me to be or to do is accomplished. And some people, probably most of us at some point, want, we crave for more than that to claim. But knowing that God will keep me until whatever he has ordained for me to be or to do is accomplished is no small comfort. I do not need to share David's experiences. It's enough to know David's God. That's the point. And it is a greatest comfort in the world to know that. That's what we share. As long as the Lord's angel keeps pitching his camp around those who fear and delivering him, I should be content. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. How he works that out is up to God. But do you see the difference between being confident in a God who does do this and hoping that you can claim to have every promise given to every person in the Old 
Testament, which is, quite frankly, ridiculous. There's promises made to Israel that are not meant for the United States of America. There are promises made to individual people who have special roles and duties. There are promises made to prophets who had special calls to preach and proclaim God's truth. Okay? You can't claim those individually. In principle, though, you can do what we just did here. The bottom line is that God knows what he has ordained for each of us. And we can be confident that we will keep breathing until his plan for us is done. David knew that. He didn't understand this whole scope of thing. He didn't think he was Mr. Chosen, Untouchable Person. And we know he, has, he was a sinful man like the rest of us. But God had a particular purpose for him. He has particular purpose for us. By God's grace, all I could do when I woke up from that surgery was go, well, I'm still here. There must be something else he wants to do or wants me to be or learn. Oh, is there the learning part? How do you learn more when you slow down? We all are finding that out in our own ways. Limits, whatever they may be, cause us to look to him. If we get to know him better through any of those things, it's a blessing. It's not a curse. He's preparing us for heaven with him when all the rest of this is going to be gone. How did God keep Jesus' line intact down through the ages? How many times were, was the line that, that Jesus was foreordained to, to come through, how, was, come under attack, try to get wiped out? This came this far, literally, from being wiped out. And God kept it down through the ages because he accomplished his purpose and brought Jesus at the time that he was supposed to come through the family that he was supposed to come in the town that he was supposed to come under Rome through he was supposed to come in the mixed up Israel that he was supposed to come in order to live the perfect life to die on the cross for us that's how it works it's back to him let's pray oh God we we want to know you better. And as we pray that, we know that you use all things in this life to accomplish that purpose. And quite frankly, oh God, we're glad you don't show us everything. We're, we couldn't handle it. We thank you for calling us to this life that you have given each of us. And that we can share it in this church. We share you in this church. And with Christians that we meet all over the world, from all over the world. Knowing that our purpose here on earth is to bring honor and glory to you through whatever you ordain to come into our lives. We know you care about the pain that is great, the loss that is great, the hurt that is great the disappointment that is great. 
in ways that we can't even fathom. And yet, as you hold on to us, and you do hold on to us, and you help us deal with it, and you help us come to you, and as our faith grows little, little, little bits at a time, we are amazed at how much bigger you are than we ever thought. We are amazed at the comfort that you can provide in our hearts when the pain doesn't seem like there's any room for anything else. And it grows. As you become brighter, our hope arises and is placed on Christ instead of on something that we can work out or we can do. You are enough. You are more than enough. You're the great I am. You meet every need that we have. You're completely faithful. And God, we worship you this day with those thoughts in mind. And we thank you for the way you open up the story in the Old Testament and let us be a part of it and go back and feel the, the, the tone, the area, the time period, the thoughts and the feelings of your people. We're not alone. Oh, we're not alone. Give us the hope that we need, the confidence in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the knowledge that our sin is forgiven and also the knowledge that we'll battle continuing sin the rest of our lives till you bring us to yourself. It's in that hope that we, that we can rejoice no matter what. We thank you that you have bought us with the price of your own son's blood and that you are good. We ask this. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.